This recording is a personal reading of Christianity Through the Centuries, A History of the Christian Church by Earl E. Carnes. Uh, this is just a personal reading out loud. Uh, please do not redistribute or recopy this, this reading uh, for any reason, um, nor should you seek to redistribute it for any financial gain. Again, this is just a personal reading of uh, this book by Earl E. Carnes, and I pray that it's a blessing to you. Today we pick up in chapter 8. The Struggle of the Old Catholic Imperial Church for Survival, 100 through 313 A.D. Chapter 8. Fables or Sound Doctrine The Christians of the 2nd and 3rd centuries had to fight what every strategist tries to avoid, a war on two fronts. While the Church was fighting to preserve its existence in the face of attempts by the Roman state to abolish it, it was also fighting to, to preserve purity of doctrine within the church. Converts to the Christian faith either came from a Jewish background of salvation by works or from the intellectual environment of Greek philosophy. Many of these converts, until the church could instruct them properly, tended to carry their old ideas into their new environment. Others tried to make Christianity appear intellectually respectable to the upper classes in the state. The threat of legalistic or philosophical perversions of Christianity was very real in the church during this era. In some instances, overzealous leaders developed a particular interpretation to correct real or fancied evils in the church, and got many to follow their heretical ideas, until heresies finally resulted in schisms, and from schisms came new sects. Roman numeral 1. Legalistic Heresies one would have thought that the decision at the Jerusalem Council to free the Gentiles from the ceremonial and ritualistic demands of the Jewish law as requirements for salvation would have been final. Converts from Judaism, however, looked back on monotheism and, in thinking of Christ and salvation, tended to dilute the faith with their Jewish heritage. Moreover, groups of Ebionites persisted in Palestine, Palestine and nearby countries uh, from some for some time after the suppression by the Roman authorities of the rebellion of the Jews under Bar Kokhba Bar Kokhba between 132 and 135 these people emphasized the unity of God and his creatorship of the universe they believed that the Jewish law was the highest expression of his will and that it was still binding on man they believed that Jesus was Joseph's son who attained a measure of divinity when the Spirit came upon him at baptism. They upheld, therefore, the teaching of Matthew's gospel, but they disliked the writings of Paul. They insisted that Gentile, as well as Jewish Christians, were still bound by the law of Moses, and that there was no salvation apart from circumcision and the law of Moses. After the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 135, they ceased to have much influence but their existence and beliefs showed that the church repeatedly had to fight for the principle that faith in Christ alone justifies the individual before God. A far greater threat to the doctrine of purity, doctrinal purity of the church, of the Christian faith, came from Greek philosophy. Many more Gentiles than Jews were won to Christianity. Among these were many philosophers who wanted to dilute Christianity with philosophy, or to dress pagan philosophy in Christian garb. Roman numeral 2. Philosophical Heresies 
Heading A. Gnosticism. Gnosticism, the greatest of the philosophical threats, was at its peak of power in of about 150 AD. Its roots reached back into New Testament times. Paul seemed to have been fighting the an incipient form of Gnosticism in his letter to the Colossians. Christian tradition related the origin of Gnosticism to Simon Magus, whom Peter had had to rebuke so severely. Gnosticism sprang from the natural human desire to create a theodicy, an explanation of the origin of evil. The Gnostics, became the, because they associated matter with evil, sought a way to create a philosophical system in which God as spirit could be freed from association with evil and in which man could be related to the spiritual side of his nature to deity. It was also a logical or rational system that illustrated the human tendency to seek answers to the great questions of the origin of man. It sought to do this by synthesizing Christianity and Hellenistic philosophy. The Gnostics, like the Greeks of the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians, sought by human wisdom to understand the ways of God with man and to avoid that what seemed to them to be the stigma of the cross. If the Gnostics had succeeded, Christianity would have been simply another philosophical religion of the ancient world. Discovery of nearly 1,000 pages of Egyptian and Syrian Gnosticism at Nag Hammadi in Upper Egypt in 1946 gives us some idea of their doctrines. Dualism was one of their main tenets. The Gnostics insisted upon a clear separation between the worlds of the material and spiritual because, to them, matter was always associated with evil and spirit with good. Hence, God could not have been the creator of this material world. The gap between God and the world of matter was bridged by the idea of a demigurge who was one of the, a series of emanations from the high god of Gnosticism. These emanations were being beings with less of spirit and increasingly more of matter. The demiurge was one of these emanations, had enough of spirit in him to have creative power and enough of matter to create the evil material world. This demiurge in the Gnostics identified with the Jehovah of the Old Testament, whom they heartily disliked. To explain Christ, they adopted a doctrine known as docetism. Because matter was evil, Christ could not be associated with a human body, despite the Bible's teaching to the contrary. Christ as absolute spiritual good could not unite with matter. Either the man, Jesus, was a phantom with the seeming appearance of a material body, i.e. docetism, or Christ came upon the human body of Jesus only for a short time. Between the baptism of the man, Jesus, and the beginning of his suffering on the cross, then Christ left the man, Jesus, to die on the cross. It was the task of Christ to teach a special gnosis, or knowledge that would help man save himself by an intellectual process. Salvation, which was only for the soul or spiritual part of man, might begin with faith, but the special gnosis which Christ imparted to the elite would be far more beneficial, according to the Gnostic, 
in the process of salvation of his soul. Since the body was material and was destined to be cast off, it might be kept under by strict ascetic practices or be given over to libertinism. Only the pneumatic Gnostics, those possessing the esoteric Gnosis and the psychic group, those having faith but no access to the Gnosis, would get to heaven. The Hylic group would never enjoy the heavenly state, for they were destined to eternal loss. There was no place for the resurrection of the body. The sacraments were not observed because they involved material wine and bread, which were linked with evil. This description of the major tenets held in common by the Gnostics should not mislead one as to the existence of numerous Gnostic sects with special doctrines of their own. Even a casual reading of the first few books of Irenaeus against heresies will show the reader how numerous were the groups and how varied their ideas. Saturninus headed a Syrian school of Gnosticism in Egypt, Basilides led another school, Marcion, and his followers came to have been the most influential of the groups linked by some with Gnosticism. Marcion left his native Pontus about 140 and went to Rome, where he became influential in the Roman Church. He felt that Judaism was evil, and therefore he hated the Jewish scriptures and the Jehovah described therein. He set up his own canon of scripture, which included a truncated, a truncated gospel of Luke and ten of the ten of the letters of the New Testament associated with the name of Paul. Although his business made him wealthy enough to be a real help to the Roman Church, Marcion was expelled for holding to these ideas. He then founded his own church. It held to a Gnostic dualism that rejected the God of the Old Testament for a God of love revealed in Jesus. It also accepted Marcion's canon of scripture. A critique of Gnosticism from a scriptural standpoint will soon make it clear that the church was wise to fight this doctrine. It posited two gods, lowercase g, the evil one of the Old Testament to create and the good one to redeem. Consequently, it pandered to anti-Semitism in the church. It also rejected the reality of the humanity, sacrificial death, and physical resurrection of Christ, whom John claimed dwelt among us to reveal the glory of God. Little wonder that Paul asserted the fullness of God in Christ in his letter to the Colossian church, Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, as well as chapter 2, verse 9. Gnosticism also pandered to spiritual pride with its suggestion that only the aristocratic elite would ever enjoy the pleasures of dwelling with deity in heaven. It had no place for the human body in the future life. In this respect, it resembled the thinking of Greek mythology and philosophy that also had no future for the human body beyond this life. Its asceticism was a contributing factor to the medieval aesthetic, ascetic movement that we know as monoticism, monasticism. It did, however, contribute unwittingly to the development of the church. When Marcion formed his canon of New, of New Testament scriptures, the church was forced in self-defense to give attention to the problem of what books were to be considered canonical and thus authoritative for doctrine and life. 
The development of a short creed to test orthodoxy was speeded up to meet a practical need. The bishop's prestige was enhanced by emphasis on his office as a center of unity for the faithful against heresy. This in turn led to the later rise of, to prominence of the Roman bishop. Polemicists such as Tertullian, Irenaeus, and Hippolytus engaged in literary controversy to refute Gnostic ideas. Gnostic and Manichaean dualism reappeared in the doctrines of the 7th century. Polycans and 11th century Bulgarian bogomils and the later Albigenses in southern France. Heading B. Manichaeanism. Manichaeanism, was, which was somewhat similar to Gnosticism, was founded by a man named Mani, or Manichaeus, in 216-77, of Mesopotamia, who developed his peculiar philosophical system about the middle of the 3rd century. Mani worked a curious combination of Christian thought, Zoroastrianism, and other Oriental religious ideas into the thoroughgoing dualistic philosophy. Mani believed in two opposing and eternal principles. Primitive man came into being by emanation from a being who in turn was a high emanation from the ruler of the kingdom of light. Opposed to the king of light was the king of darkness, who managed to trick primitive man so that man became a being with mingled light and darkness. Man's soul linked him with the kingdom of light, but his body brought him into bondage to the kingdom of darkness. Salvation was a matter of liberating the light in the soul in his soul from its thraldom to the matter of his body. This liberation could be accomplished by exposure to the light, which is Christ. The elite, or perfect ones, constituted the priestly caste for this group. They lived ascetic lives and performed certain rites essential to the release of light. The auditors or hearers shared in the holiness of this elect group by supplying their physical needs. In this way, the hearers might also participate in salvation. Manichaeanism laid so much stress on the ascetic life that it looked on the sex instinct of as evil and emphasized the superiority of the unmarried state. Manichaeanism may also have contributed to the development in the church of a priestly class apart from the rest of the believers, who were considered uninitiated laymen. Manichaeanism had made influence for a long time after the death of Mani in Persia. So great a thinker as Augustine, during the years he was seeking for truth, was a disciple of the Manichaeans for twelve years. After his conversion, Augustine devoted much energy to refuting his, this philosophy in against the Manichaeans. Heading C. Neoplatonianism. Too often, the average person thinks of mysticism only in connection with the medieval mystics. The fact is that there have been mystical tendencies in the church throughout the ages. Mysticism may be thought of as existing in three forms. 
There may be an epistemological type of mysticism in which the emphasis is on how man comes to know God. Those devoted to this type of mysticism think that all our knowledge of God is immediate and comes directly to us by intuition or spiritual illumination. Reason, and in some cases even the Bible, are subordinate to the light of inner light. Most medieval mystics, the Roman Catholic quietists of the 17th century, and the Quakers held to this view. Others emphasize a metaphysical type of mysticism in which the spiritual essence of man is thought to be absorbed mystically into the divine being in occasional experiences here and now. Following the extinction of his separate personality by death, man's spirit becomes a part of the divine being. The Neoplatonists, some of the more extreme mystics of the Middle Ages and Buddhists, held to this type of mysticism. The Bible, in contrast, emphasizes an ethical and spiritual type of mysticism in which the individual is related to God through his identification with Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Neoplatonism is a good illustration of the ontological type of mystical philosophy. It originated in Alexandria as the brainchild of Ammonius Saccus, circa 174 to 242, who was born of Christian parents. Origen, the Christian church father, and a man named Plotinus, studied under Saccus. Plotinus, 205 to 70, then became the real leader and taught this doctrine in a school at Rome during the third quarter of the third century. The work of producing the literary statement of Neoplatonism was done by Porphyry, 232-305 AD, from the collected writings of Platonus. The resulting comp- compilation, known as the Aeneads, has been preserved. It teaches a metaphysical monism rather than dualism. The Neoplatonists thought of absolute being as the transcendent source of all that is, and from which all was created by a process of overflow. This overflow, or emanation, finally resulted in the creation of man as a, re- as a reasoning soul and body. The goal of the universe was reabsorption into the divine essence from which all had come. Philosophy contributes most to this process as one engages in rational contemplation and by mystical intuition seeks to know God and to be absorbed into the one whence all has come. The experience of ecstasy was the highest state one could enjoy in this life. These ideas influenced Augustine. Emperor Julian, who was known as, quote, the apostate, end quote, embraced this rival of Christianity, and during his short reign from 361 to 363, tried to make it the religion of the empire. Augustine embraced it for a short time during the period of his quest for truth. The movement, no doubt, contributed to the rise of mysticism in Christianity and offered an attractive substitute for Christianity to the pagan, unwilling to face the high ethical and spiritual demands of the Christian religion. It died out early in the 6th century. Roman numeral 3. Theological Errors Certain views may be thought of as misrepresentations of the meaning of Christianity, overemphasis, or as movements of protest. 
They were, however, harmful to Christianity, and some of the energy that might have gone into the work of evangelization had to be directed to the task of refuting these errors. Montanism, or monarchianism, are examples of two such errors. Heading A. Montanism. Montanism emerged in Phrygia after A.D. 155 as an attempt on the part of Montanus to meet the problems of formalism in the church and the dependence of the church on human leadership instead of the on the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He was opposed to the rise of, to prominence of the bishop in the local church. This attempt to combat formalism and human organization led him to a reassertion of the doctrines of the Second Advent and the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, as so often happens in such movements, he swung to the opposite extreme and developed fanatical mis misinterpretations of Scripture. In the development of his peculiar doctrine concerning inspiration, Montanus contended that inspiration was immediate and continuous, and that he was the paraclete, or advocate, through whom the Holy Spirit spoke to the church, as he, the Spirit, had spoken through Paul and the other apostles. Montanus also had an extravagant eschatology. He believed that the heavenly kingdom of Christ would soon be set up at Papuza in Phrygia, and that he would have a prominent place in that kingdom. In order that they might be prepared for that coming, he and his followers practiced strict asceticism. There was to be no second marriage if a, ma if a mate died. Many fasts were to be observed, and dry foods were to be eaten. The church reacted against these extravagancies by condemnation of the movement. The Council of Constantinople in 381 declared that the Montanists should be looked upon as pagans. But Tertullian, one of the greatest of the church fathers, found the doctrines of the new group appealing and became a Montanist. The movement was strongest in Carthage and eastern lands. It represented the perennial protest that occurs in the church when there is over-laboration of machinery and lack of dependence on the Holy Spirit of God. The Montanist movement was and is a warning to the church not to forget that its organization and its formulation of doctrine must never be divorced from the satisfaction of the emotional side of man's nature and the human craving for immediate spiritual contact with God. Heading B. Monarchianism. If Montanus was overzealous in his presentation of the doctrines of the Holy Spirit and inspiration, the Monarchians may be said to have erred because of their excessive zeal in emphasizing the unity of God in, a, in opposition to any attempt to conceive of God as three separate personalities. They were concerned with an assertion of monotheism, but ended up with an ancient form of Unitarianism, which denied the real deity of Christ. Their problem was how to relate Christ to God. During the late 3rd century, a man named Paul of Somasata was bishop of Antioch. In addition to his office, he held an important political post in the government of Zenobia, queen of Palmyria. He often played the demagogue in the Antioch church, 
by preaching to the gallery with violent bodily gestures and asking for applause and for the waving of handkerchiefs. On occasion, he had a female choir sing hymns praising him. Because he neither inherited a fortune nor was engaged in business, there was some suspicion as to the sources of his large fortune. This able but unscrupulous man taught that Christ was not divine, but was merely a good man who by righteousness and by the penetration of his being by the divine logos at baptism achieved divinity and saviorhood with a lowercase s. This attempt to uphold monotheism robbed the Christian of a divine savior, capital S. The doctrine set forth by Paul of Samosota became known as dynamic adoptionist monarchianism. The proponent of modal monarchianism was a man named Sabellius, who decided that he wished to avoid any danger of tritheism. After 200 AD, he formulated the teaching that goes by his name. He taught a trinity of manifestation of forms rather than of essence. God was manifested as Father in Old Testament times, later as the Son to redeem man, and as the Holy Spirit after the resurrection of Christ. Thus, there were not three persons in the Godhead, but three manifestations. This view may be illustrated by the relationship that a man may have. In one relationship, he is son, in another, brother, and in a third, father. In all these relationships, there is but one real personality. This view denies separate personality to Christ. It has been revived in the new issue or Jesus-only form of Pentecostalism. Roman numeral 4. Ecclesiastical Schisms. Subheading A. Easter Controversy. Certain schisms concerning matters of discipline and ritual also developed in the church during its infancy. The Easter controversy arose about the middle of the second century over the question of what was the proper date to celebrate Easter. The church in the, in the East held that Easter should be celebrated on the 14th day of Nisan, the date of the Passover according to the Jewish calendar, no matter what day of the week it fell on. Polycarp of Asia was opposed in this view in 155 by the Roman bishop Anicetus, who believed that Easter should be celebrated on the Sunday following the 14th of Nisan. When in 190, Victor, bishop of Rome, excommunicated the churches of Asia as he opposed Poly Polycrates of, e of Ephesus, Irenaeus rebuked him for his pretentious pretensions to power. The eastern and western segments of the church could not arrive at any agreement until the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, when the viewpoint of the Western Church was adopted. Heading B. Donatism. The Donatist controversy developed about 312 as a result of the persecution of the Church by Diocletian. Most of the controversy was centered in North Africa. A churchman named Donatus wanted to exclude Sicilian form from his office as bishop of Carthage because Sicilian had been consecrated by Felix, who was accused of being a traitor during the Diocletian persecution. Donatus 
argued that the failure to remain true during the persecution invalidated the power of Felix to ordain because he had thus committed the, an unpardonable sin. Donatus and his group elected Majorinus as bishop, and after the death of Majorinus in 313, Donatus became bishop. When Constantine gave money for the African church, the Donatists complained because they received none. A synod held at Rome decided that the validity of the sacrament does not depend on the character of the one administering the sacrament. Hence, the Donatists had no right to do any to any of the aid. Another council of Western bishops held at Arles in 314 again decided against the Donatist position. This controversy became a matter of some concern to Augustine, and as a result of his concern, he wrote much on the question of the authority of the church. This authority was needed for salvation. It may be said in conclusion that the results of the controversies, errors, and heresies were not always destructive. The church was forced to develop an authoritative canon of scripture and to formulate creeds, such as the rules of faith of Tertullian and Irenaeus, that summarize the essential teachings of the Bible. The necessity of answering the false theologies stimulated the rise of Christian theology. The position of the bishop was strengthened by the emphasis on his office as a rallying point against heresy or error. False teachings arose through the attempts of ambitious men to assert their authority through overemphasis and consequent misinterpretations of certain scriptures, and through loveless treatment shown to, the, to an erring minority by the church. But this did not finally weaken the church. Instead, they forced it to think out its belief and to develop organization.